Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, <laughs> this feels, this feels the like, moment you decide. Yeah. Like, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, always edit. <laughs> so, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right. So, the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian. No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Before we move on to the podcast itself, I wanted to tell you about a school in Boise, Idaho called the Boise Classical Academy. Benjamin Brandon, a contributor to this podcast, is the director of the Boise Classical Academy. Boise Classical Academy inspires students to love learning by exploring beauty, goodness, and truth in the classical Christian tradition. They seek to integrate the homeschool and classical traditions into an atmosphere that pursues education of mind, body, and soul. They promote a faith-based foundation, a partnership with families, a classical curriculum, and a dynamic learning environment. Their website is boiseclassicalacademy.com. Check them out. I played Ultimate Frisbee with a few of those kids, and they were quite good kids. Now on to our podcast. Salvete, amici! This week's podcast returns to the Latin-speaking city of Carthage in North Africa, studying the writings of Cyprian of Carthage. I'm your host, Chad Kim, and with me as usual are Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. Our conversation this week focuses on two treatises, On the Unity of the Church and On the Lapsed. Somewhat unique to this podcast, we focused heavily on the history surrounding these two works because the events in the Roman Empire directly influenced the theology being written by Cyprian. Tom will elaborate further in the podcast, but it's important to remember that in the year 250, Decius, the emperor of Rome, issued an edict that all Roman citizens must sacrifice to idols and plead allegiance to Rome. Some Christians under torture did eventually make the sacrifices and then return to the church. These are known as the lapsed. Others refused to make sacrifices, either by hiding or paying for certificates to prove that they had made their sacrifices to idols while not actually doing so. Novation, eventually ordained a bishop of Rome, did not want any of the lapsed to be allowed back into the communion. This is the Novation heresy. Cornelius, the other bishop in Rome, created a way for the lapsed to be allowed back into the Christian communion. It is also important to remember that the bishop of Rome, later on in church history, comes to be called the Pope, but not yet in this period. Cyprian sides with Cornelius and was himself eventually martyred for the faith. This question of the true church comes to the fore in Cyprian's writings, as now there are rival bishops and churches based on the persecution of Decius. Cyprian believes in the absolute unity of the church and desires to save that unity amidst the controversy. This is one major focus of our discussion. Next week, we will approach another new topic, prayer, specifically the Lord's Prayer. As wide-ranging as our discussion of theology has been, we have spent little to no time discussing the theology of prayer, and we hope to rectify that next week. Please check us out at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ahistoryofchristiantheology, and give us your thoughts on what unity looks like amongst Christians. We would love to hear from you. You can also check us out on iTunes and give us a review, and we would really appreciate it. The problem with Cyprian is he uses a lot of words to not say very much. I think I think you could boil down this entire writing uh, to really a couple of very key, quite simple points. I do think that they're, I mean, interesting points that could provide some fruitful discussion about things we have not talked about ever. So, I mean, this is new ground, I think. Nonetheless, it is pretty overly simplistic. Here's the thing. You know, Cyprian, probably more than any other 
uh, theologian we've read requires an understanding of the history. You need to know what's going on because he's addressing a historical situation. This is what he's arguing. He's arguing for something that is rooted in the history of the church. And it really surrounds the persecutions of the emperors. And, you know, I think there's this misunderstanding that people have that early Roman emperors uh, just universally persecuted Christians. Such is not the case. For the most part, Roman emperors didn't concern themselves with Christianity. Christianity was a minute, just part of what was going on in their world. It was of no concern to them. But for some reason, in the mid-third century, with the rise of the emperor Decius, things change. Decius basically implements this plan whereby every Roman citizen needs to proactively prove his loyalty and his faithfulness to the gods of Rome by offering a sacrifice um, to Jupiter, to Juno, to the traditional gods. And you might ask, well, why would he do this? What would be the significance of it? Well, the reality is, is all of human history is rooted in this kind of religious devotion. Um, even modern evangelicals today call as as a kind of a political act, a political move for Christians to go back to the worship of the Christian God. Because, And they'll say things like, America was founded upon Christian principles and, and things of the like. And so this is something that all nations have kind of wrestled with. And Decius was a conservative. That's what it was. He, he wanted to call Rome back to its old traditional foundations, and he thought that would lead to blessing in the empire. Well, when Christians get the call to offer sacrifices to Jupiter, they refuse. And consequently, punishment must be enacted. And so for the first time in Roman history, you have a persecution that stretches empire-wide, where Decius is literally going after Christians. And so you have kind of a massive widespread persecution. Now, the important thing to Cyprian is this. Most persecution, or most, sorry, most Christians buckled. Most Christians gave in. They went ahead and offered the sacrifice and were thus excommunicated from the church. Those people are called the lapsed. They are the ones who were not able to follow through. There were, of course, the handful who suffered, were not killed, but maintained their faith. They're called the confessors. And so the thing is, Decius will die. And when that happens, his successor restores kind of a policy of toleration. Christians enter into kind of a peaceful mode again. And now they need to decide, what do we do with the lapsed? And you essentially develop three basic stances. There's a liberal a liberal stance, a conservative stance, and a moderate stance. The liberals say, look, we're a church of grace and mercy. Let's let the lapsed back in. Back in. Let's forgive them, and let's restore them to full communion. The conservatives, who were led essentially by a guy named Novation, the conservatives say, nope, none of them. We don't let any of them in to the church. We They are excommunicated for good. The offering of of a sacrifice to an idol is an unpardonable, unforgivable sin. The moderate position says, let's let them in, but let's make them do various deeds or works of penitence to show their commitment to the Christian faith. And after they do that, we will allow them back into the church. Now, the key thing that our listener needs to understand is that Cyprian and the church as the whole embraces the moderate view. It embraces the moderate view. And because of that, that becomes the stance that everybody's supposed to follow. Well, that's going to play an important role in the city of Rome, where the previous bishop of Rome, Fabian, had died under Decius's persecution. And so they hold an election, and Cornelius becomes the new bishop of Rome. Well, he's on Cyprian's side. He's a moderate. And thus, the church becomes moderate. Novation, who also lives in Rome, is upset, and his followers 
decide to elect him as an alternate bishop of Rome. So here's the key thing. You have two bishops of Rome. You have a split in the church. And so Cyprian is essentially saying, that's not okay. There cannot be a split. We must have a unified church. And he's going to say that he's going to say the solution is to excommunicate Novation and his followers, that they are not in communion with us. You know, and to Novation's credit, um, I, I get, I kind of actually get it when I just put myself in their mindset because they did look up to the martyrs a lot back then and uh, to die a death uh, for Christ, like Christ died was like a big virtue that was espoused, I think amongst the early church. And so you see, you know, I mean, obviously we've read stuff where, you know, the, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. We've read lines like that uh, or similar lines. How does it go? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Yeah, yeah you said the blood of the church is the seed yeah. of the church. Oh. Like <laughs> Whoops. I was trying to be Yoda. Failed. <laughs> no, but yeah, anyway, point being, it, it, was, uh, it was looked up to. And so I could see why Novation's like, no, just die instead, like, and confess. And, like, I could see why that was held in such high esteem. But then similarly, of course, we as moderns now look back um, – And we could look at it with our own viewpoint, but we could also, I think, look at it from a biblical stance and go, yeah, forgiveness is a virtue as well. But unity being espoused is such a great virtue. We now kind of just accept this, yet we're like the most split we've ever been as moderns now. Like the church is so schismatic. So, Well, that's really practically, I think, why this piece, as much as I'm not a huge fan of Cyprian's writing style. Actually, it's bothersome because he says way more than he needs to. He could have, I think he could have said everything in like a couple of paragraphs rather than, you know, but nonetheless, I think it, this is actually good, fruitful literature for a conversation because his call is unity within the church. And it's not just like a, it's not a plea. Here's the big thing. It's not like he's saying, please, everybody, let's be unified. It's a, we are in fact unified, and if you are not with us, then you're damned. You are not a part of us. You're out. And what makes this, and so why this is a good discussion is, as you just said, in the church today amongst Christians, it is a virtue to be unified. Like we call for unity, but we are incredibly ununified. There are over 300 Baptist denominations, just Baptist. I don't even know the number of overall Christian denominations. And there doesn't seem to be any way to somehow to link these all back together into one. Yeah. Well, and the basis for Cyprian's unity, as far as I can tell, I mean, this is one of the major questions. What is it uh, that makes it makes us unified? As a Protestant, typically Protestants say, well, our belief in the scriptures, um, you know, Jesus is the head of the church, maybe. Um, and what you'll later see is a lot of, in a lot of uh, medieval theology, they will look back to people like Cyprian, and see this as a defense of Rome um, as the center of unity. And, and one way that they say that in Latin is ecclesia in episcopo, which is the church is in the, the episcopate. The church is in the um, hierarchy of bishops. And what Cyprian says in uh, this first treatise in the fifth chapter is the church also uh, – the episcopate is one, each part of which is held by each one for the whole – the church also is one, which is spread broad, abroad far and wide uh, into a multitude by an increase of fruitfulness. So basically, 
what what Cyprian is trying to come to terms with, what the church is trying to come to terms with in this period is there are these little communities, um, which is kind of what ecclesia means anyway. There are these little gatherings, these little assemblies of Christians all over the Mediterranean. What is it that makes them unified? Um, and at least one possible interpretation of that unity um, that Cyprian is kind of arguing for, at least in this passage, is – it is in this unified uh, uh, church hierarchy, um, and that's it's like governmental. Yeah, what's that? Yeah, it sounds governmental. I mean, right. And so it's it, which is a little. I mean, I would take it to be a little. Uh, maybe that's scary, but um, you could definitely see the seeds of the later medieval Catholic Church in what Cyprian's saying. So I guess I sort of wondered as I read it. Okay, so. Is this exactly what he's saying? He does mention uh, Matthew 16, uh, the, where Peter makes his confession and they do the keys thing. And um, is this exactly what he's saying? Is it the hierarchy or is there for him, is there a different way to read Cyprian that says, no, it's not just the hierarchy. There's something else that is holding them together. Well, I let me read that passage, the Matthew 16, 18 and 19, just yeah. for I assume most of our listeners are familiar with it, but just a reminder, um, because the way he sets it up, it's in chapter four at the start. He says, if anyone consider and examine these things, meaning talking about the nature of unity in the church, he says, there's no need for lengthened discussion and arguments. There is easy proof for faith in a short, now he says, this is what's interesting, summary of the truth. So in his mind, this is the summary of the truth about the bedrock of the unity of our faith. And then he quotes Matthew 16, in which he says, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound also in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he goes on, so this is Cyprian, and he says, and again to the same he says, after his resurrection, feed my sheep, meaning to Peter, and it says, and although to all the apostles after his resurrection, he gives an equal power and says, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. So he's quoting scripture again, receive the Holy Ghost. He goes a little bit further and he says, yet that he might set forth unity, he arranged by his authority the origin of that unity as beginning from one. Assuredly, the rest of the apostles were also the same as was Peter, endowed with like partnership. But the beginning proceeds from unity. So if I, I mean, it seems to me that what he's saying is the foundation of the unity is Peter as the head of the church. And it does seem to me also that he identifies Peter with the Bishop of Rome. Okay. He, he, this is why everything kind of played out the way it did with Cornelius and Novation. Cornelius is the Bishop of Rome. Cornelius agrees with me. Therefore, the church is going to agree with me. Now, mind you, this is coming from somebody who is not Roman Catholic who does not believe in the authority of the Pope. But it seems to me that that Cyprian, I mean, it's very clear. I, I think up until this point, we could have argued a lot about whether or not people are assuming certain Catholic, doctor, Catholic doctrines. I think Cyprian is a foundation, a big foundation for much of what will come in the Catholic notion of unity. And my question for all of us then is, if this is his notion, where do we find unity? I mean, as 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 Christians in a broader sense, if he's wrong, which I think he is, 
because this is a Catholic's argument. I mean, this is what a Catholic will say. He will say, come home, come back to the church, because we need to have this unified church, and we have this bedrock. We have this foundation. Well, I, I just wanted to be clear on something, though. If the other apostles are given equal power, as he says, would an Orthodox, uh, yes. Eastern Orthodox, though, read this in their light? Yes. So I had an Eastern Orthodox priest who actually was my Greek teacher, and he said that all of the apostolic sees have been given the same authority. So he would read Cyprian separately and then or differently. And how he would interpret that last bit where he says he gives equal power, but it all flows from a unity, meaning, I mean, you could interpret that probably some different ways. He would say that Peter, as the bishop of Rome, he is the chief, and he does have a place of primacy amongst us. But then he would say, but he is a first amongst equals. He is not a dictator, and he has no right to, to dictate what is true for the rest of us. We are equals. That is not we, but the apostolic sees are equals. They all have equal say. Peter just has a primacy of position. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely think, like, while all the apostles were alive, Peter could get outvoted. I mean, it just mm-hmm. seemed like, just by common sense, that seems right. And I think maybe Cyprian would... Uh, attest to that I, I have no idea but i'm just speculating mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know I, I could also see an orthodox defense here but there's still yeah there is a defense of at least a unity of i mean something that we'll probably end up talking about a lot in the future which is this kind of apostolic succession and this church being united based on the apostolic sees mm-hmm. well that's I, what the orthodox believe yeah. And I mean, you know, one thing he doesn't actually, you know, he has to get he goes through three chapters before he gets to the bit that Tom and I were referencing. Um, and, you know, one thing he says in chapter two, but how can a man say that he believes in Christ who does not do what Christ commanded him to do? Um, and he starts building his case for unity on what Christ teaches. Um, and he says in one place, standing in the footsteps of a conquering Christ um, and putting on Christ, the wisdom of God, the father. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think it, it might be, maybe it's, maybe it's not reading uh, Cyprian is cl- uh, in the same way that Tom is, but could, you know, could a, a Protestant read the, even the bit where he says, he might set forth unity. He arranged by his authority. The origin of that unity is beginning from one. As I mean, is beginning from one thing, beginning from one Christ, um, beginning from one Christ's commandment um, that that they build a church. Uh, you know, could you know? I guess you could sort of you could try to read it a little bit less. Uh, he, focused, he, seems, but. He, he seems to identify that one with Peter three different times. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could make the argument that he doesn't explicitly say so maybe but i don't know i mean i think that could be just i mean it, it really seems to be that he, he he's setting up contrasts because he says all the apostles are equal yes but and he started off with peter yeah now, i think there are all sorts of other arguments we can make i mean when when i am confronted with that passage in matthew 16 as a protestant I, i've always felt a huge logical lapse um I don't take the common Protestant interpretation. A lot of Protestants say that that when Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, a lot of Protestants say that rock, they don't, that, that Jesus didn't mean Peter, that he meant his Peter's confession. Right. I, I don't think that. I think there's a wordplay. 
He calls him Peter. And then he says, on this Peter, I will build my church. So it it seems pretty clear he's making the wordplay. I just have never seen why I should follow the logical leap, which says that because Jesus said those words to Peter, therefore the person who currently presides in Vatican City has absolute authority over matters of doctrine. Like that's a, that's a big logical leap. Like I don't even need, feel the need to think that anybody who was ever the Bishop of Rome had some kind of privileged authority given to him. I mean, Peter, like in the new Testament, anyway, there's no association between Peter and Rome. I of course believe tradition, which says that Peter ended up in Rome, but Peter ended up in lots of places, right? I mean, I don't see why, Rome itself should somehow necessarily have this privileged position. So as a Protestant, uh, you know, I feel that Peter is being honored there. And the way I've always actually interpreted that passage is something actually just matter of factual is that Jesus is essentially saying, good job, Peter. Good job. You're a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And I just look at that as a reference to Acts chapter two, when Peter preaches the first sermon and you have the first converts and a church is established. And then Peter goes on to be a leader amongst I mean, it's a statement about the kind of person he will be. I don't think it's a statement about him as a monarch or a ruler. And I certainly don't think it has any bearing on Cletus and Clement and the various successors in Rome um, as far as that goes. So the whole notion of apostolic succession is not something that I feel Protestants need to feel compelled by. Right. And one thing just to go back. So, I mean, I was, you know, I I think I was opening up a different interpretation of Cyprian. But yeah, of course, just because um, I was trying to maybe Protestantize Cyprian a little bit, um, I, I'm also not compelled to agree with Cyprian. Um, and of course, neither are, you know, are you, Tom, you know, I mean, this isn't, or Trevor, um, you know, this isn't technically like sort of a binding authority for Protestants. We're just reading through how the church developed the teachings that it developed. So I think it's important that we remember here, uh, we're just trying to, to look through all of this teaching that has been taught and see where, where we find agreements, where we find disagreements, where we can see threads, where we can see, you know, the different elements that have made up um, the Christian tradition uh, over the centuries. Um, but as to this question of unity as sort of, you know, maybe thinking a little bit more like theologians, it is an interesting question um, you know, that Trevor brought up, like all of us would sort of agree that we should be unified. Um, and then, you know, as Tom pointed out, but there are over 300 Baptist denominations. So to return to what is unity, one thing that uh, Clement reads is, uh, or excuse me, Clement, that Cyprian reads is Ephesians 4. Um, Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. Um, and then I'm going to read on one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all, Um, you know, so um, if we, if we take some other passages that uh, Cyprian cites, you know, the question could be, um, you know, maybe looked at a little bit differently. What does make us unified? I, I, it seems to be, I would think like a modern answer, at least the answer I hear a lot is that just basically the Holy spirit unifies us in the sense in which wherever the spirit is and whoever the spirit indwells, well, then you're part of the church by that, by that deposit of the spirit. And that spirit is found in, you know, depending on who you are now, you argue where it's found, basically, because um, some people are very strict in their different traditions. But like a good majority of just mainstream Christians I know think, yeah, there's Christians in all denominations in that sense. But um, I don't know that. I mean, that's nearly as subjective, though, because now we're just judging 
where the spirit is, um, which is something people argue about. I mean, we have the fruits of the spirit by which we're supposed to say, you know, we will know people by these things that are produced in your life and by your, you know, confession of Christ. But yeah, this, I don't know. Well, it's all, uh, you know, it's not that I disagree with that, that thought. I, I actually agree with it. It just isn't concrete. And so what the problem that arises is like, in what way can I even think of the church? Like with Cyprian, that's what's so key to his argument. He's like, look, there is the church and you're with us or you're against us. And if you're against us, then you're damned, period. And it's like, we are a machine and we exist in the world concretely. And it's very definable. And at least, okay, I, I need to be fair. I know that I'm kind of bringing some of my thoughts to that. It's not like he uses this language and maybe I'm misrepresenting him a little bit, but that's how I gather it. Yeah. And for me, it's like, you know, you just always have to, we're always stopping and saying, what do we even mean by the church? I mean, there are plenty of denominations that I look at and I go, oh, well, they're just heretics and they don't count. Right. I mean, that's the way I think. Now I am no Pope, (laughs) like in any sense, like there's nobody who's vested me with any kind of authority to be able to declare what denominations are heretical and what denominations are not. And then it raises the question of how do I interact with, with people uh, that are of these different movements? And then you have the situation of communion. I mean, like there are a lot of believers from different traditions and different backgrounds that I would share communion with and a lot that either I wouldn't or who wouldn't with me. You know, I experience this when I think about uh, going like every year I go to Europe and I go to Rome and I go to Paris and I would love when in Rome to be able to partake of communion at these various churches like St. Paul's Basilica or the Vatican uh, or, uh, you know, the Notre, Notre Dame. I would love to be able to partake of the Eucharist, but I can't um, because I'm not Roman Catholic and it's a closed communion there, which I, I don't blame them for. I, I actually respect that they have a closed communion, but it's just there's this wall of separation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then I go to Westminster Abbey, where in all likelihood, the people that I'm sitting with in Westminster Abbey, I probably disagree with more fervently than I do with the people in Notre Dame. But with them, I definitely can have communion because, number one, I feel comfortable taking it with them. And number two, they have open communion, so I'm allowed to. But it just leaves this huge question mark as to what does it mean for the church to be unified? What does it mean for us to, you know, and and you know, what is the, and I think, what is the foundation of that unit? It's a, it's a difficult question. What is it that makes the church, the church in the way that we talk about it? Yeah. I'll be honest. This reading, this was a little cringeworthy for me. Um, just cause I was just so like, ah, that sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I have to confront the fact that I'm, I mean, I've always thought about this because he kind of gives this really vivid analogy of the body being dismembered of Christ. Mm -hmm. And I've actually thought of that before where I'm like, yeah, I mean, how bad is this? Like, is it like that? And I've always heard the analogy of a tree as well. You know, the Catholics will say the seed, um, you know, the tree grew up and then at the Protestant Reformation, Luther walked up and chopped a branch off and buried it in the ground and called it a new branch. Then I've heard, you know, I've heard the Protestant version where it's no, 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 there was, all these doctrines like barnacles building up onto a ship and Luther went down there and hacked some of them off so that the ship wouldn't sink. And I've heard all these different analogies for what's happened and how we're united and 
how the how every church says it's united but yeah i mean if you go to the farthest farthest extreme of like protestant evangelical non-denom i guess their answer is going to be have to do with like holy spirit bible and it's going to be less clear you go to maybe anglican it's going to have to do with some apostolic succession but then of course and the the book of common prayer really and the book of common prayer but then we go to the catholic answer and yeah it kind of lines up with what uh, at least it seems to line up with what Cyprian thinks. So, well, uh, you know, one, a lot of, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, you know, one thing that um, this is just reminding me uh, is throughout the ages, Christians throughout all the theology that we read, Christians will be dealing with this, like vi- oh, ca- what Calvin will call the visible and invisible church, or, you know, um, in, in more um, intense Pentecostal denominations, the baptism of the Holy spirit um, for Catholics, you know, sometimes it's just as simple as were you baptized and are you receiving communion? Basically, what are the marks of a true Christian? How do we know um, what are the marks of the true church um, to to basically bestow Christianity on people is kind of how maybe even a Roman Catholic person might look at it. Um, And so basically you find salvation in the church. And unless you're in the church receiving grace from the church, you're not receiving it. That aside, though, one different way to look at what um, Trevor was just responding to is this question of how do we tell the history um, of the church or the history of theology as we're doing um, wh- where it, where for a lot of Protestants you kind of ignore basically Aug- we've mentioned this you ignore Augustine to Luther um, but but uh, you know even Roman Catholics have other things that they have to confront uh, whereby you know, there are there are different um, developments in their doctrine uh, where doctrine is different. So it's important to remember here that Cyprian isn't saying that the pope speaks infallibly ex cathedra uh, because no pope spoke ex cathedra until or was even allowed to speak ex cathedra. Their definition wasn't there until 1870. And more, as far as we could tell, only ever happened once on the bodily assumption of Mary in the 1950s. Uh, you know, so there is this question of continuity and and or development um, in doctrine, even in Roman Catholic circles, where they have to, um, you know, respond to this history um, as, you know, differently. So, you know, Protestants have their issues in terms of unity and and how they tell the history. And the same goes for Roman Catholics. Yeah. You know, one thing I think is interesting is this is uh, something that I have experienced a lot over the last several years. And frankly, it's not just experiencing conversation. I myself kind of went through it at various times in my life where I've seen a big move into uh, basically from Protestants into Roman Catholicism because of this question, right? Because of the question of um, what is the ground of unity within the church and not just unity today within the church, but also I think when people feel that impulse back into the Roman Catholic church, it's actually uh, tied into their desire to connect with the history, with the tradition. They want to feel a part of not just the unified church today, but the unified church throughout all of history. And I understand that impulse. I think that's a perfectly fair thought and feeling. And I definitely had it at one point, but here's where it went for me psychologically. It was a pull for me into Roman Catholicism, but then it was a pull for me into Eastern Orthodoxy. (laughs) Yeah, Because at the end of the day, they both have equal claim, I think, 
if you're talking just the history, the tradition, and a, a sense of a linear timeline, they both trace them. I mean, they can take the notion of apostolic succession in any case uh, back as far as you want it to go. But I would point out that even here, we already see the problem in a much bigger way. And that is, when I read this, when I read Cyprian, do I think of Novation as the way that Cyprian describes him? Do I think Novation is this horrible, evil heretic who uh, is probably the spawn of the devil and has, you know, no, um, you know, basically is just here to lead the people of Christ astray? The answer is no. In fact, they don't know what happened to Novation, but in all likelihood, he was actually persecuted and died a martyr's death under the Emperor Valerian, who would come onto the scene shortly after Decius. And the, the reality is, and this is what is also not being addressed here, Novation was, in fact, elected as the Bishop of Rome, right? The problem here is, here is the problem. You have here two bishops of Rome. They were both duly elected. They were just elected by a different group of people. And so the question can always come up with, why should I think that this one is actually the right one versus that one? And the answer that we can always, you know, that people will point to is tradition. But the truth is we cannot tell the tradition without talking about the schismatics because the schismatics are part of the tradition. That is part of the history. And Luther was not the first schismatic. You have the great schism between Eastern Orthodox and um, the Roman Catholic Church, which, Chad, 1054, right? Yeah. 1054. Um, and then you have, but that, that's not the first time either. There are countless things, and Novation is just one of them. I here I side with Cyprian because I, I side, I have a more moderate view on this. I, I think Novation is too harsh. To be honest, I probably would actually take the even more liberal view of allowing all the lapsed in without some kind of a penitential requirement. I mean, I would want them to admit they were wrong, and I guess, but I assume everybody would be willing to do that. Why would they come back in if they hadn't yeah. first admitted they were wrong? But anyway. Well, one thing it's important to remember, too, just uh, I think because it's interesting, is Cyprian himself went into hiding. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> And so while the Decian persecution was going on, um, Cyprian kind of made a run for it. And so there's a little, you know, there's a little bit of that maybe um, undergirding what he's saying and po probably part of his moderation. He's like, look, I want you guys to be fair to me um, because <laughs> I, you know, and maybe it was yeah. for the good of the church in Carthage. Um, but, but yeah. Well, and he took flack for that. Like yeah. Christians criticized him for hiding and not st sticking up, standing up with his, um, you know, for his flock. I will add this. Um and any Cyprian defender out there, I'm sure, would would point this out. And, Chad, you, you know, obviously. But Cyprian, I think, will take it a little bit too much to heart. And when the Valyrian persecution will pop up, uh, you know, a few years down the road, then he will stay put and he will be arrested and he will, in fact, uh, face persecution and will die. He'll die a martyr's death. So Cyprian, in that sense, as a, the is redeemed, so to speak. Right. Um, not that I – I don't blame him for hiding. I mean, I think – if you can hide, hide. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, I definitely respect the confessors um, and I respect the martyrs tremendously. And just so you guys know the difference between a martyr and a confessor, the martyr dies, the confessor is tortured, but doesn't die, nor does he yield. Right. And then the lapsed is the one who, who uh, actually, who actually yields and, and gives in. But I mean, I respect the confessors, but I also know that there was a bent in a certain 
bishops and Christians to want to be persecuted. And I don't, there's no reason for that. I, I, I think about Origen actually, who, you know, we've been reading up to this point. Origen, there's, there's an old story about him that when he was a child, his mother had to hide his clothes because there was a there was a famous persecutor in town, and he did he wanted to run to go face his face his persecutor as a young boy. So it's like there's this ongoing story with Origen that he was that he desired a martyr's death, or even Ignatius of Antioch, who we read a long time ago. Do you guys yeah. recall? I mean, he was going to Rome and he was begging his supporters not to intervene because he wanted to die in Rome where Peter and Paul died. And it's like I, I mean. I don't respect that. I mean, I respect the courage to stand up to it, but to pursue it unnecessarily, that that never made any sense. I, I don't hold it against Cyprian in the slightest that, that he hit. No, yeah. To to go back to the question of unity a bit, though, I, I was thinking when I was reading this, though, that we do have some sense in which we look at other groups and go, cult, actual Christians, and, like, we kind of all agree on that. And there are a couple doctrines I can think of that basically create this separation in our minds. Um, I, I mean, to think of a group, I mean, the LDS church is, is one in which, you know, the mains, they, you know, they call themselves Christians. Uh, mainstream Christian church would all go not Christian. And I almost, I mean, all three branches, Orthodox, Catholic, and and all the Protestants would say this. And so there's a weird sense in which I've always felt that we're kind of unified because we all can identify some things because of their certain doctrines we just all hold on to. But but yeah, but as we've already labored at, but yeah, there's also a sense in which we're like horribly split apart. So mm. I don't well, know. I, I know that there's certainly a mindset within the church that prevails amongst Catholic, Orthodox and Protestants as to what counts as um, kind of sine qua knowns, meaning um, things without which you are not a Christian. And and so certain doctrines that people hold as litmus tests, so to speak, to say mm-hmm. you have to believe this. And there's no doubt that there are groups that those that Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox will all view on the whole as being outside. But I do think, one, that litmus test actually changes throughout history. Um, so although that there might be a certain litmus test today, that wasn't necessarily true even 80 years ago. I mean, most fundamentalists like 80 years ago, most fundamentalists like 80 years ago would not have actually thought that Catholics were Christians, right. Or evangelicals, Mm. they would have just denied. I mean, you think, I mean, you know, the Lutheran and Calvinist tradition says that Catholic, that the Pope is the antichrist. That's, I mean, the epitome of non, of non-Christian. So it's actually a moving thing, like throughout history what that litmus test is and, and, and how it works. And so I, I've, I've still never felt entirely comfortable with that. And even aside from that, even though there might be some general consensus today, I think there are a lot of people who nonetheless maybe don't still don't fall into that consensus. I think I could envision lots of perhaps Protestant groups or, or maybe people just not very educated who might look at the LDS church and say, Oh yeah, well, it's a certain kind of Christian there. You know, we can agree to disagree even with them. I mean, I've met people who definitely, hold to that kind of stance. For me, it, it just always comes back to the concreteness, though. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, those are us kind of trying to make uh, kind of judgment calls, so to speak, of will I count you or not? But it's not actually us as a thing, an organism, working and moving throughout history. That's not what it is. Definitely, so. no. And um, maybe one last little thing to look a little bit 
at the treatise on the lapsed, um, you know, the things that Cyprian asks the, the, so those that when they were faced with the prospect of persecution, either, uh, or for, faced with the um, force to make a decision whether or not they would sacrifice to idols or eat food sacrificed to idols or in some other way demonstrate their loyalty to Rome, um, if you fell, you were lapsed. And so Cyprian goes through and talks about um, ways in which they, they sort of they atone for what they've done, uh, be earnest in righteous works, whereby sins may be cleaned, purged, frequently apply yourself to almsgiving, whereby souls are freed from death. Um, he who thus made atonement to God, he who by repentance for his deed, who by shame for his sin has conceived more both of virtue and of faith from their very grief of his fall, heard and aided by the Lord, shall make the church which he had uh, lately sad and glad and should now deserve of the Lord not only pardon, but a crown. So yeah, so Cyprian allows them to come back. What do we make of the the necessary requirements to return into good favor? Um, you know, I mean, it's a little, I don't know, it's, it's pretty explicit. Like, these are things you kind of have to do. It's not just, hey, I'm sorry, I went wrong here. You kind of got some, requ- you got some stuff you got to do. Well, and as far as we can tell, you know, the history of Christian theology is tougher than people think, I think. I think they think that if you go back and look through it enough, you can find the book that tells us where every different theological view came from. And the answer to that is no, that's not true. Most significant steps in theology, movements in theology, kind of arose like more organically amongst individuals as they were talking and arguing, and it became a part of a certain um, community, and they just espoused it, and it literally just all of a sudden appears in the writings. And it seems to me that when you read uh, Cyprian here, you have nascent penitence in the way that we think of, like, you know, for again, for our listeners, maybe who are less familiar with Catholicism, in the Catholic Church, you have seven sacraments, one of which is penitence. And of course, that's what, uh, you know, you might think of if, I mean, I'm sure if you're not familiar with Catholicism, you've at least like seen a movie where somebody's confessing their sins to a priest and the priest tells them to do certain acts as penance. And so I've heard a lot of people say that the foundations of the penitent theology that Roman Catholics espouse can be traced back to Cyprian, that essentially Cyprian is here saying, look, we can't just allow the lapsed back in without any requirements. So we've just got to set these things for them to kind of prove themselves. And that it almost seems like this just became a part of the thinking that 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 we need as Christians to have some kind of uh, obligation that shows our earnestness and our commitment uh, to the church. And so I, I think you could make the argument that this is the beginning of penance um, and the notion of penance, which as an avowed evangelical Protestant, I don't, uh, I don't believe in penance and I don't believe in the doctrine behind it, which is why I said earlier, I think if I was alive in Cyprian's day, I probably would take the liberal view and I would probably say, allow all the laps back in as long as they say, they're sorry. I mean, more or less to say they were wrong. They made a mistake. It was a moment of weakness. And I would probably say, yeah, come back in. Can I get overly philosophical probably for a second? Sure. Um, I was thinking about this because there's kind of a, an epistemic or uh, in layman's terms, there's a principle about what we know and how knowledge works about other people and other people's intentions and hearts at at play. Um, Because in general, it's like, we do think 
you need to prove yourself in other areas of life, especially when we're, you know, when it's uh, something in which you're trying to get me to trust you in some way. And so we, we have things set up even just in our society um, where uh, perhaps, I mean, down payments is a lame example, but that, that is one. I mean, but the, but the idea is basically that, um, or we give things as collateral, but the idea is that we do have principles of trust where you need to show something so that we can get the idea because we don't really know, we can't really know you. And I was thinking about this with just even the unity of the church in general. Here's just a general blanket problem for the whole situation, which is at the end of the day, to me, it seems like people's thoughts are ultimately private and their heart is ultimately private. And since it does seem like some have been declared saved by the attitude of their heart toward Christ, and since God knows them perfectly and intimately and we don't, there's a way in which we'll kind of, it's almost fundamentally unknowable, but I also, and this ties back to penance, I don't blame them for thinking these things at least by because they wanted these outward signs. Because how else are we, though, supposed to know anything about the inside of you, what's going on in you? And there's a way in which we have to be a bit like, we have to take a bit of a skeptical position, I think. I think it's in a way fundamentally unknowable. Perhaps now, maybe some people would say we can miraculously know um, someone else's heart, perhaps. But it does just seem like, I don't take this position that like my soul all of a sudden sees your soul and that we have this weird mystical uh, knowledge of each other. I, I do think it's like we're ultimately private. And so we have this, we have a knowledge breakdown right here and it's anyway, I don't know. So. I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. And, and, and I certainly, I should say that even though I don't espouse a doctrine of penance and I certainly think that it's been horribly abused historically that doesn't mean that I think that there might not be arguments that could be made for espousing it if you have a certain take on it. I mean, certainly. And I think yeah. I think what you may said just now is a very good point. Very fair. Yeah. And the only other thing I was going to I was looking for the passage and I couldn't find it. But somewhere Cyprian actually says that um, we're sort of. I mean, and, and I'm just paraphrasing, but we're given heretics or we're given people we disagree with. So we can uh, defi- like sort of realize what is true and test what is true, um, which, you know, is not the most charitable way to read someone like Novation and say, well, we kind of need you because otherwise we wouldn't be tested. But they're like if, if you take a broad enough view, I guess, if you if you try to be, you know, you could also say, though, like and this is kind of what Tom was saying is where these doctrines emerge is within conversations and there aren't necessarily they're not always established um, criteria where you can say, oh, this is obviously wrong here. Um, the church hadn't de- dealt with this kind of lapsing before. And not that there wasn't persecution before this point, but as Thomas said, there was not the same uh, large, like wholesale persecution um, a- as there was under Decius. So they're like, okay, we've, conf- we've got this new issue that we didn't kind of know what to do with before. Um, and so now how are we going to handle it? Um, and so, yeah, so, and, and Novation's works uh, are preserved, um, and there's actually some, uh, there's one sort of history that Novation is actually reaccepted at Nicaea. The followers of Novatius are reaccepted in, uh, in the Council of Nicaea, and there's a little bit of reconciliation uh, between uh, the Novation followers. I mean, you know, that could just be 
I'm not exactly sure where that comes from. I just read it um, uh, in a footnote. Um, but, uh, but I thought that was interesting. So is when you said that there's this story, like, is that like an anecdote that is told or is that something that you're like comes from a reliable source? Cause I find that very interesting. I don't know. Um, I suspect it's from Eusebius, but, um, the footnote didn't cite where it came from. That's interesting. And you know, our listeners for our listeners, they may not be familiar with this group, but we'll, they'll come up eventually. That's interesting because just before Nicaea, you have the Donatist controversy, which is essentially the same thing. Yeah. So it's still the same basic issue. The Donatist, Donatist mm-hmm. Church will break off for all the same reasons that Novation uh, broke off. Um, if you will, might, you might think of it, our listeners might think of it as um, kind of the intense, conservative, structured, um, uh, law-driven portion of the church versus kind of the more mercy and grace kind of portion of the church kind of split you know yep thanks for listening we will be back next week with cyprian's treatise on the lord's prayer